Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. I know, I know, don't say anything. I got busy with midterms and whatnot, but alas, I'm back. We have some quick housekeeping, but remember to check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China. Thank you to all of those who have sent me emails, even if you are a Leeds fan. Kidding, Jonathan. I really did appreciate your emails. And I do hope Leeds stays in the top flight for a while. And of course, though, thank you to all of those of you who have donated. But this week, if you are going to loosen the purse strings for anything, it should be to donate to the I'm Not Done Yet Foundation. In 2017, Bobby Menges passed away the first semester of his junior year after losing his battle with cancer. But not before he and the Pi Kappa Alpha chapter at Duke University started the Shave and Buzz event. Each year, members of the fraternity and beyond shave their heads in solidarity and raise a lot of money to fight cancer. Yeah, there's funny money-raising challenges that involve hair dyes, running, you name it, it happens. And I'll be honest, blonde does not look good on me. Anyway, the funds support AYA programs and services for adolescents and young adults, at the Duke University Medical Center and the Duke Cancer Institute. So I'll put a link up on the website, so please, it would mean a lot if you checked that out and donated. And if enough of you donate in the next week or so after this episode releases, and you maybe write, you know, the history of China or something, maybe we can try and shave my head in a funny way while we're at it. But where were we? Ah, yes. Emperor Wen's stabilizing reign comes to an end as he died, and his son, Emperor Jing, assumes the role of emperor in 157 BC. As we know, before he was emperor, Emperor Jing had gotten into sort of a Liu Bo-related argument with the crown prince of the Wu Principality, which then one thing leads to another, the game board is thrown, and the crown prince of Wu is dead. And yeah, bad start. No more crown prince titles, it is Emperor Jing of Han. And it's his time to shine. So, sorry for the long delay, but without further ado, The History of China, Episode 30. I've been teasing two things over and over, like a potential Bears trade for a quality quarterback. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen for, it seems like, years on end until it never does. I mean, Andy Dalton, really? Anyway, in our case, these two things here do happen, and they are happening now. The rebelling kings are the first of the two, and that is what we are going to discuss here to start. So far, the rebelling kings that I've mentioned, in all honesty, have not been that big of a threat. I mean, any king rebellion has not really been an existential threat. Dangerous? Yes, I mean, of course. A rebellion of any type is not quote-unquote safe. But by the time Emperor Jing came to power, it was painfully obvious that these provincial kings and the system that they were a part of was a ticking time bomb. Each king of the seven major states began to consolidate their own authority little by little. And this is a big deal. Because say you have like 20 kings, they each alone are not that powerful, 
And if we've learned anything new by now, it's that ancient kings don't join forces that much, if ever. But seven? Well, maybe seven kings, each controlling a legitimate swath of land, men, and resources. Well, maybe they could become an actual problem. Emperor Wen never really took the necessary policy steps to avoid these provincial rulers from consolidating and growing and entrenching themselves. We know that. But in 154 BC, just a few years into his reign, Emperor Jing and Chao Cuo, the advisor who came up with the way to supply the Northern Army, essentially said, yeah, we gotta do something now, or else the problem will eventually become too large. So the plan they came up with was to simply make the provincial areas smaller. Okay. In essence, the Han Imperial Court was just going to take some of their land and put it under their own control in the form of new commanderies. But in actual policy, it was almost that plain as day. That's not really what they did. They had to, you know, find a way around it. The policy to break up these provinces and create these new commanderies was de facto just because the Han Imperial Court wanted to. But the Han still gave themselves justifications for it. No matter how paper-thin and fake those reasons were, they still gave reasons. Chao Tsuo and Emperor Jing went about accusing anyone in these states, from the prince of the Chu state to the prince of the Jiaoxi state to the government of Zhao and Wu for respectively, and I'm not making these up, making love during the mourning period for the Empress Dowager, that was for the Chu state, embezzlement in quotes for Zhao Xi, and the Zhao state were given quote-unquote an unspecified offense, and the Wu state were just told that all of the accumulated issues of their ruler, whose son was killed by the Han during a board game incident, well, look, he had enough offenses to justify a Han commandery. You get the idea. This is like me justifying evicting my brother from the Xbox by making up some paper-thin excuse when everyone really knows. It's because I'm the older sibling, and that's all that anyone really needs to hear. So, if you're sitting back and saying, My gosh, Eric, did you lose the plot in your school break? How would Emperor Jing and Chao Tsuo have thought doing this would fix the powder keg? Well, I promise you, hang in there with me. This is going to make sense, I promise. Yes, they were probably poking the bear. But Emperor Jing and Chao Tsuo knew very well what they were doing. They realized that something had to be done, and that doing something, yes, might poke the bear, but they came to the conclusion that if the states were to decide to rebel because of this, well, it might as well be now, because every day they wait, these states would get stronger, and a future rebellion? Well, that's going to be a lot harder to quash. They're saying, look, like, if it's going to happen, let's do it now. And guess what happens? The Wu state, after the board game incident, the force commandery, and a litany of other issues, decides to rebel. Though real quick. The histories seem to use prince and king interchangeably with these provinces. These principalities or states, in the eyes of the Han, were ruled by people with the title Liu, which to them was prince slash king, it's not clear, 
Hence why all of these names of kings start with Leo. But king in practice, sure, but again, these are anglicized versions of their titles and stature in society. So, you know, prince, king, it's not that important. They are the leaders of a principality. That's what you need to know, but I just wanted to clear that up. So, the prince slash king of the Wu state knew that he was not alone, and he tried to get others to support the rebellion. And if you guessed he found six other states, bringing the total to seven, then you're right. After all, it is called the Rebellion of the Seven States for a reason. So the Wu state was able to get the Chu, the Jiaoxi, the Jiaodong, the Zichuan, and the Zhao states to all hop on board. But alas, those were not all the states that he invited into this now massive rebellion. The Rebellion of the Seven States was very almost nearly the Rebellion of the Nine States. But the Qi and Jibei states, now central and northwestern Shandong respectively, said they were down, only to never actually join. Moreover, three other states, from what we know, either just said no, or were never asked, or something, but they never came. Now, the seven states were set, but alas, they still wanted more help. So the seven states started asking tribes to help. They asked the two independent kingdoms in the south, who they knew would probably join out of fear of the Han one day conquering them. So the Honghai and Minyue were approached. Now these kingdoms were not deal breakers per se. I mean, if you didn't have them, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But they agreed to send troops and that will never hurt one's cause. The most interesting move, though, these seven rebelling states made was reaching out to the northern Xiongnu. And even more interesting than that is the fact that the Xiongnu allegedly said yes. Whether, though, it was from a feeling that this rebellion put them in undue political danger or what it was, no one knows, the Xiongnu, like several others that said yes, simply never showed up. But they were asked and did allegedly say yes, but never showed up. The Wu state was the ringleader here. That much we know, and it is not a shock. Liu Pi, the prince-slash-king of the Wu state, was given several attack strategies, ranging from just up and attacking the Han capital, going after garrisons and armories in Han territories, attacking the Han food supply. I mean, there were tons of ideas. Yet alas, in the end, he decided to not break up any of his combined forces and sought to just have them attack Liang. And map, by the way, will be on the website. Liu Pi knew that if he broke up his own army, he was opening up a litany of potential disasters. They would be weaker for one and other states could look to better themselves and break off the plan. They could just have bad communication, etc. But he wanted to make sure that he kept the bulk of his best troops with him. But back in the Han capital, Emperor Jing followed his father's wish. Remember how during Emperor Wen's reign, a man named Zhou Yafu impressed the emperor so much during the potential incoming Xiongnu attack that he asked his son to promote him to general should the need ever arise during his reign? Well, 
Emperor Jing did just that once this rebellion of the seven states started. So Zhou Yafu is in supreme command of the Han military. Upon seeing what the rebellion's strategy was, in that it was to attack the Liang region, Zhou Yafu came up with a plan. The plan was not to go out and just defend Liang and face the combined Chu and Wu forces head-on. No, no, no. The Chu and Wu principalities slash states had very solid soldiers and were even renowned for their military ferociousness. So maybe going up against them, eh, not the best idea. Instead, Zhou Yafu elected to let the rebellion crash onto the walls of the Liang capital, and while the Liang was bearing the worst of the attack, Zhou Yafu would take the Han army up and around Liang and then come down and cut off the rebels from behind. It's a smart plan, and it's a solid one, but it was very heavy on timing. If Zhou Yafu is killed or found out, the plan falls apart. If Liang falls before the Han can cut the rebels off from behind, the rebellion has a clear route to advance, and the plan falls apart. Or, and this is what actually happened, the emperor's brother, who happened to be in Liang, thought that the city and the region wasn't going to make it, and asked his brother to help. Whereabouts, his brother, Emperor Jing, told Zhou Yafu to abandon the whole plan and lift the siege of Suiyang the capital of the Liang region. Yeah, the emperor's brother got cold feet panicked, emperor asked Zhou Yafu to come help, and here's where it gets spicy. Zhou Yafu ignores that order. Yeah. So, after avoiding assassination attempts from the rebels and then ignoring explicit imperial orders, Zhou Yafu got to Liang. He sent a cavalry detachment to cut off the rebellion's supply lines, all while Liang held firm. So both things that needed to happen, happened. The region held. It didn't capitulate. And Zhou Yafu was able to get into position in time to cut off the rebellion's supply. After realizing they were now cut off entirely from supplies, and that Liang was not falling quickly the Wu and Chu forces decided they needed to make something happen. So, they turned to the northeast and just tried to attack Zhou Yafu. They have no food, the region is not falling, they gotta get a victory. But Zhou Yafu saw the situation the rebels were now in, and opted against a decisive encounter, and instead just sat around guarding their camp, i.e., guarding their yummy food, something the rebels were now in short supply of. Lack of food quickly became a problem, and the soldiers of the rebellion started to just drop. Then tens of soldiers, then hundreds, then thousands all started to drop. Without engaging in a massive battle, this huge rebellion was an all-but-name crushed. Liu Pi of Wu pulled the old Pompey Magnus trick and fled to an allied area, only for that ally to kill him and then use that as a means to gain favor with the Han. 
But unlike Caesar, the Han did not cry about this and were rather happy about it. As for the Chu leadership, well, Liu Wu, the prince of the Chu, took the easy way out and committed suicide. No battle, two of the big leaders gone, and you're probably wondering, what about the other states? This was a seven-state rebellion. What, what happened to the rest? Well, okay, I'll tell you. So one of the rebelling states went rogue, and after hatching their own plan, their leader, Zhou Tio, had a nervous breakdown after learning the news of the Liang region debacle, and well, according to the histories, died of anxiety. So that's three states out now. The rest of the four states had attacked Qi, which as we know had not ended up joining even though they kind of said they would. And the Qi capital almost fell, but it was relieved by Han forces and other allies. And now the prince of Qi, a man named Jiang Lu, was told to surrender. I mean, it was not looking good. But somehow he found the will to keep going. I mean, these rebels had his family members come to the wall and told him to tell this prince, hey man, just surrender. But essentially, these captured people would actually secretly tell him to keep going strong. And he found the will to keep going. Though when he was eventually saved and the remaining four states were defeated, the fact that the Qi had been initially on board with the rebellion came to light. So even though Prince Jiang Lu of Qi had stood firm in the face of certain defeat and was a major part in bringing the rebellion to a halt, once that was found out, he committed suicide. Though as we know, Emperor Jing was allegedly a chip off the old block. So in the vein of his father, he allowed the son of the Qi prince to inherit the principality. So, there's some nice stuff here. So with that, the rebellion was over. And while it was seemingly easy and decisive and honestly pretty straightforward for the Han, a lot had to go right. And if something had gone wrong, let's say Zhou Yafu didn't make it in time, or Liang collapsed, or the Qi state fell, or the Qi state joined. I mean, there's so many things that could have gone differently. Well, if they had have gone wrong, and the rebels somehow won, the dynasty would have probably ended right there. So with this victory, Emperor Jing was able to begin decreasing the principalities of size and authority with impunity. I mean, he did it before, but, you know, it caused a rebellion. But now he can just do it whenever he wants. So this policy would continue through his own reign and into the reign of his son. They weren't going to just shrink the principalities like that. That might be a bad idea. This rebellion was the defining moment for Emperor Jing. Domestically, it's pretty quiet. He continued the easier-going policies of his father, and the only major issue came with Zhou Yafu, and later with his own succession. So, about Zhou Yafu. Zhou Yafu did not save Liang. He did not lift the siege necessarily. He ignored that order. Was it the right thing strategically? Of course, without a doubt. But pissing off the emperor's family members and succumbing to court politics, 
is nearly worse than losing a battle in a war. Not to get too bogged down, because we still have a lot to cover, but long story short, Zhou Yafu made every powerful person mad at some point or another, starting with not saving Liang, even though that was the right thing to do. And in the end, against the wishes of many, Zhou Yafu was arrested in his later years because he was taking his armor and weapons to his tomb. Zhou Yafu was getting up in age, he realized he was dying soon, he was making arrangements, and of course, a general wants to be buried with his equipment. That's part of the whole thing. But what was he arrested for? What was the crime? The crime was underground treason, which literally means Emperor Jing had him arrested because he suspected Zhou Yafu of waging treason against the spirits of the emperors in the afterlife. Yeah, that's a pretty paper-thin excuse. After being arrested, Zhou Yafu committed suicide. This, and maybe the board game fiasco, was one of the few blemishes on Emperor Jing's reign. The last issue was succession. Emperor Jing's wife, Empress Bo, failed to have a son. Remember, the Empress's son was the one who was to be the next emperor. Emperor Jing had sons with concubines. You can see where this is headed. We are going to go through this quickly. It's confusing, but we might as well. So, Emperor Jing then promotes Prince Rong, his oldest son of his concubine sons. Then, in 151 BC, Empress Bo is deposed literally like Catherine of Aragon or Anne Boleyn. I mean, deposed, because she's not giving him a son. Power vacuum opens up, and the consorts begin to do under-the-table backstabbing to replace her. The most ruthless is Consort Li, who was as jealous as she was ruthless, and her son was the new crown prince, Prince Rong. So, in appropriate fashion for the day, princesses and other consorts began remarking on a comparison to Empress Dowager Liu. Yeah, that one. And they essentially said that if Consort Li becomes the Empress, you're going to have all of that on your hands all over again. And of course, no one wants that. So with that whisper campaign going on, Consort Li's son, Crown Prince Rong, on his own, made several blunders. He got way too comfortable with the fact he might be the next emperor, and he shouldn't have been that comfortable because while he was crown prince, he wasn't the son of the empress yet. And after a couple mistakes, he was demoted, and so, therefore, also his mother. And consort Wan was made the empress. Thus her son, Prince Che was the heir apparent in 150 BC. What happened to Consort Li? Um, she allegedly died in anger over her son being demoted. Make of that what you want. Then the whole Zhou Yafu fiasco happens, and we are caught up and in 141 BC. In 141 BC, after a short, but not that short reign... Emperor Jing died, 
He has been noted as being a continuation of his father policy-wise, but notably was a bit less open-armed. Though, well, that's not that bad of a thing given the increased treachery he had to deal with compared to his father. Regardless, he had fought off destruction and kept the Han's upward trajectory well on track. And in 141 BC, Prince Chen indeed became emperor. His name was now Emperor Wu, W-U. So in 141, Emperor Wu of Han assumed power, and according to the Book of Han, quote, he was indignant about this catering to the Xiongnu, and quote, he thought deeply to work out long-term strategies to rid themselves of the threat that the Xiongnu held, end quote. Emperor Wu's long-term solutions changed the course of the Han Dynasty in China forever. And arguably, Roman history and European history and Middle East, yeah, yeah, it this is a big, big decision. The Book of Han itself is brief in describing what he did. But it proclaims that, quote, he sent brave soldiers to navigate the Yellow River and go right across the deserts to destroy the savages' court. End quote. However, the real course of events was much more complicated, and it wasn't that short. In 136 BC, the emperor proposed to his court that they should engage the Xiongnu in war. Look, they said yes to that rebellion, they're not really listening to the agreement, they're still raiding, and look, the last two emperors have gotten us on the right foot financially and militarily, we should do something. However, the court did not reach the same conclusion and a compromise was made because many in the court were afraid of the potential costs of fighting the Xiongnu in an all-out war. Some were afraid that it was risky militarily, and others just said, look, people are making money, the economy's great, I mean, well, why would we risk that? So the compromise was to lure Jun Chen Chan Yu, the leader of the Xiongnu, to a certain place with, quote, wealth and promises of defections, end quote, in order to kill him. And thus, this would cause political turmoil for the Xiongnu, and huzzah, they win. The trap was to be set at Mai, M-A-Y-I, and in 133 BC, the Xiongnu forces were all but there as a massive Han army purported to be, get this, 300,000 men strong laid in wait. As Jun Chen and his smaller army moved closer to Mai, he became suspicious, allegedly because he was tipped off about this impending ambush and he pulled his army back. Now, due to the fact that he realized the Han were in fact trying to ambush him, the peace between the Han and the Xiongnu disintegrated, and the Han court finally decided to engage in full-scale war. The war. I've been talking about it for a while. Well, it's here. Next week, the Han-Xiongnu War. Ha! Enough hyping it up. I mean, it's finally here. This is the, my favorite. So anyway, it's been a year since I started this podcast, literally to the day. And I cannot thank you guys for listening and being just the amazing fans you guys have been. I never expected it to be where, it, you know, where it's ended up. 
but we got a lot of history to go through, and I'm not stopping yet. So remember to check out the website, like and rate the show five stars, and please remember to consider donating to the fundraiser that will be on the post for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the History of China. <laughs>